I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres. It will give you unique insights into your favorite authors and keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Rabbi Naomi Levy, who spoke to me about her book, Einstein and the Rabbi. On its face, it's an exploration of the meaning and purpose of the soul, inspired by the famous correspondence between Albert Einstein and a grieving rabbi. What it really does is help us think about what that space is that some people have found with religion, some people look for in various versions of spirituality, And she does a great job of helping us think about this notion of the soul in a wider way. And stay tuned after my conversation with Rabbi Levy to hear what folks are reading on the streets of New Haven. But first, my discussion with Rabbi Levy. Albert Einstein was once the most famous person on the planet. Today, his work remains integral to scientific study, to the physics of our world, and to the way we conceptualize our very existence. His quotes on all manners of subject litter the walls of college dorms, university classrooms, but there's one Einstein quote that is unlike any other, a letter in response to a grieving father who had just lost his son. In Einstein and the Rabbi Searching for the Soul, Rabbi Naomi Levy dives into the mystery of what prompted one of the greatest scientific minds in history to write so eloquently about the human condition and what it says about our own interconnectedness. She joins us today to describe this journey of discovering this other dimension of Einstein and the backstory of this grieving father. And along the way, She helps us in our journey to discover our souls. Welcome, Rabbi Naomi Levy. Thank you, Roxanne. It's just a joy to be here with you. Well, it's just just a treat. Uh, For those of our listeners, I got to know Rabbi Levy as a writer many years ago when she wrote a book called To Begin again, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it's a book that everybody should own and everybody should give to anybody who has had a loss or a bump in the road that necessitates them starting over. I I don't think anyone could be better served than by reading to begin again. And now she's done it again with Einstein and the rabbi. So this is such an unusual story. Naomi, can I ask you to read uh, Einstein's response to this father that started you on this journey? Yeah, this is what Einstein wrote. He said, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, the kind of optical delusion of his consciousness The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Mm. And how did you discover this letter? I was preparing for a class that I was teaching about oneness, about how we're all connected. And I was looking through various books and I came upon this quote and it was just a tiny snippet. 
And the minute I saw it, I just, it just stopped me in my tracks. I just thought it was so beautiful and spiritual. And I couldn't believe that Einstein had written it. Mm. It sounded to me like an ancient mystical text or some kind of Buddhist text, but it came from a physicist. And so from there, so here's this like shred of a piece of paper in this like onslaught of things that Einstein had written. What motivated you to pull that thread and find out who it was written to and what were the circumstances? You know, I wish I could tell you what prompted me to want to know who Einstein was speaking to. All I can tell you is that for some reason, I could have left it at that. There were many other things I taught in that class where I had little snippets of things, little teaching. Exactly. But for some reason, I saw Einstein wrote this to a grieving father, and I needed to know, who? Who was he writing to? What? Who was this person? So I just started to research it, and I found, oh, well, he was writing to somebody named Dr. Robert Marcus. And again, I could have left it there. That's all I really needed to know was who was this guy? Oh, okay. He was a, some doctor. But there was a piece of me that just could not let it go. And I was like, well, who was this Dr. Robert Marcus? Who was he? And I started to do more research. And it turns out, wow, he wasn't a doctor at all. He was a rabbi, which is the way people often refer to clergy back then, just like Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. He was a rabbi. Einstein was writing to a rabbi. Yeah. And, and right away, the minute I heard that, I needed to know who was this rabbi. And what did you discover about him? I discovered that there was a rabbi named Robert Marcus, who was an Orthodox rabbi, and he'd written a letter to Einstein. But before I could find that letter, I found out so many other things about him. He was a chaplain during World War II, and he served in General Patton's army. He was there on the beaches of Normandy. He was in southern France. He led the very first uh, Jewish prayer service in Germany. And on April 11th, 1945, Rabbi Robert Marcus was one of the very first to enter Buchenwald upon its liberation. Mm. And there he discovered all the devastation that we know about, but perhaps we met, most of us don't know that he discovered a thousand Jewish boys who were alive, which was an unbelievable sight because children were the first to slaughter and he discovered a thousand children who'd been hidden by the camp inmates. A and thousand, children, a thousand children, Naomi. A thousand children. Hmm. And one of those children who looked more dead than alive was a young boy named Ellie. But we don't know him as Ellie because the world came to know him as Ellie Wiesel. Hmm. How old was he then, Ellie Wiesel? He was sixteen and emaciated beyond belief. And did Rabbi Marcus end up having a relationship with Ellie Wiesel? Uh, other, I mean, other than the the overwhelming, literally saving his life, liberate being part of Ellie Wiesel's liberation. Well, Rabbi Marcus took it upon himself to be like everything to these children who were all orphans, to be their father, their mother, their rabbi, the teacher. He led the very first prayer service there in Buchenwald. He had discussions with the kids. He insisted on finding them homes, finding them an orphanage, and he insisted on personally taking them there. And year, many years later, I was able to interview Ellie Wiesel about Rabbi Marcus. And Ellie said that when he saw 
a soldier with a Jewish star sewn onto his uniform, he couldn't believe his eyes. He said to us, a, a Jewish star sewed onto your clothing was the mark of death. And suddenly it was the mark of life and the mark of freedom. Rabbi Marcus is over in Europe. Mm-hmm. We don't want to give anything away because in thinking about Einstein and the rabbi, my experience with the book was that it provides several different elements. One is this mystery of the relationship between Einstein and the rabbi and how Einstein came to write to Rabbi Marcus. Mm -hmm. And the other has a universal quality of searching of the search that so many people have to understand their core or what might Mm -hmm. be described as their soul. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to give anything away about the relationship between the rabbi and Einstein, but I do want to come back to your interviewing Ellie Wiesel. Mm -hmm. Share with us, Naomi, your first exposure to Ellie Wiesel. Wow. Uh, when I was a kid, um, well, I guess I have to step a little further backwards and say that I, I wanted to become a rabbi from the time I was four years old. And probably one of the reasons why I wanted to become a rabbi was, uh, I grew up with a father who taught me, he taught me Bible and he taught me how to pray from the very youngest age. And he wasn't a rabbi, right? Your dad? No, he was, he was in the garment industry. But I, I say, I always say, he was my rabbi. Mm. And uh, even though people laughed because there were no such thing, there was no such a thing as, as woman rabbi. Uh, and some people scolded me because and this they was said in it Borough was, Park, right? The, yes, a very, very traditional, <laughs> right. traditional neighborhood. Um, and some people scolded me that it was blasphemy to want to be a rabbi. Uh, but my father always believed in me. Um, and he always believed that this would come to pass. Um, and when I was 15, my parents were walking down the street one night and a man came at them at gunpoint to rob them. And he shot my father and uh, my father died. Mm. And as you can imagine, it was just, uh, it just devastated my life mm. in so many ways. Yeah. And... At that moment, at that point in my life, maybe just a few months after my father died, my mother saw that Ellie Wiesel was giving a lecture up at the 92nd Street Y in Manhattan, and she asked me to come with her. And even though I didn't want to go, somehow she persuaded me, and I went. And sitting in that darkened auditorium, somehow listening to Ellie Wiesel hearing his words and just the sound of his voice and the beauty of what he was describing. Somehow he planted inside of me a spark of hope, but there was hope in my future. Watching him, a man who'd been to hell and back, seeing him share such beauty gave me a belief that there would be a tomorrow for me Mm. at a time when I didn't have any faith in tomorrow. Yeah. Which is, by the way, what Rabbi Marcus did for Elie Wiesel. Yeah, how ironic. Yeah. You, you know, I want to take a, a minute to really um, absorb what you just said, Naomi, because the capacity of one person to bring hope to 
you know, one young woman sitting in an auditorium is both remarkable and inspiring that one person can do that for another person. I think we all underestimate the ways we reach each other. We underestimate the impact of an encounter or just a kind word. It's, it's so rare that we take the time to really understand how connected we all are. You know, I just came, I, I had told your, your assistant, Christine, I said, I'm giving a lecture this morning and I'm hoping that this event won't run late. But it, it was this huge event. It's called the GA, the General Assembly. And it's, um, it's the gathering of all the Jewish leaders in the U.S. and Canada, like 2,000 people. And I had to give uh, a talk at the GA and, the, you know, the lights were on me and the room is black and yeah. you can't see anything. And I could not tell at all if people were taking in my words or not taking in my words. And when I was done, I left the stage. I mean, of course, they clapped at the end. But when I was done, I left the stage and I just thought, hmm, that didn't go so well. And I left the room and I was in the hallway and I was thinking, ah, all right, I'll just go home now. And all of a sudden, this woman came up to me and her face, all her makeup was all smudged. And she goes, I've been waiting out here. Because you reached me mm. and I needed to talk to you. And it's just, it's like that. Life is strange like that. Where you have no idea that you and someone else are making a connection. Yeah. And you just don't know. You know, I think I have this right. I mean, I read the book 20 years ago. But if I recall, in To Begin Again, it, you have these chapters and at the end you have um, like a prayer that might be uh -huh. a Hebrew, in Hebrew or but is always also in English. And I think I recall you talking about that we think only religious leaders, a rabbi or a priest or a minister, can offer blessings to another person. Mm -hmm. When in fact, we can each offer blessings to each other. A am I remembering yeah. that right from the book? Yes, yes. Good memory. <laughs> Well, it was very striking to me because, mm -hmm. you know, normally a lay person would think that it would be presumptuous or grandiose to offer a blessing. But the way you talk about it, it's actually a gift of kindness. It is. And we can all do it. And when people start doing it, it's contagious. It really is contagious because yeah. what you can give and what you receive when you give is so powerful. Yeah, and I think people don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Naomi, I mean, I think most of the time, the only time we ever say anything about a blessing to somebody is when they sneeze. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and the truth of the matter is we have the power to bless people, to bless their lives in ways that can lift them up just at a moment that they needed to be lifted up. And we didn't know that. Right. We just didn't know. And... and and the idea that even just listening can be transformational, I think, is something we overlook. Yes, yes. Naomi, how did you know at four that you wanted to be a rabbi? Do you, do you have any recollection of how you conjured that up for yourself? I, I guess partially it was as far-fetched as, you know, a little kid saying, I want to be an astronaut. You know, it was, it was way out there, way, right. way out there in outer space. And did your parents, did your parents say, Naomi, that's ridiculous? They didn't say that's ridiculous, but I think there was like a feeling like, oh, that's cute. Isn't that yeah, cute? Yeah. Um, but I think because it remained with me, because I kept 
holding on to it, I think that they stopped thinking it was cute Mm -hmm. and they started believing that it was real. And all I can tell you, Roxanne, is I do believe, even though people may, you know, I should think, wow, that sounds psychotic. (laughs) I actually do believe in the word calling. Mm. And I do believe that we're all called into service in some way or another. Right. And I really do believe I was called and born to be a rabbi. Well, so we know that you were named one of the top 50 rabbis uh, in America by uh, Newsweek magazine. So somehow this calling not only turned out to be something that directed you, but has impacted so many. And one of the things I'm fascinated by is you're the founder and leader of Neshuva, Mm -hmm. which is a Jewish spiritual outreach program that's, I know, based in Los Angeles. Tell us about that, because I've heard others who have been part of that service just being transformed and riveted and inspired by the service. What is it? Neshuva is it's definitely an experience. Uh, my goal was to create a service that was deeply spiritual and open to all people, Jews and non-Jews, that was transformative. And it involved retranslating the Hebrew of, of Jewish prayer. And it also involved um, finding musicians and setting Hebrew prayers to various musical idioms like gospel, pop, rock, show tunes, um, ecstatic melodies, uh, very soulful melodies. Um, at Neshuvah, we also do a meditation. And the bottom line is the word Neshuvah means we will return. Mm. And the goal of Neshuvah is to bring people back, not only to themselves, to the call of their own souls, but in our time, so many people... They've rejected organized religion, but they're still seeking a connection right. to the soul and to the soul of souls. And it was my goal to bring Jews back to Judaism and, uh, and any fails who wants to come to have a connection to the ultimate, to the soul of the world. And do you still hold these? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. And where do you hold them? Uh, most of the time, we're at Brentwood Presbyterian Church, which is in, in L.A., in, uh, in Brentwood, not far from the ocean. I need to get to one of these. I'd love for you to come. Do you you do, you do them once a month? We do it once a month. And Ashuba also has done some live webcasts. And remarkably, we've done it in partnership with um, JewishJournal.com, which was a newspaper my husband uh, recently left, but he was the publisher of Jewish Journal. And this year, we had some... 90,000 people across the globe with us live online. Live? Live. Holy cow. Yeah. It obviously speaks to the unique music and choice of prayers that you bring to it, but it probably also speaks to what you were saying before, that people have in droves left organized religion, yet the need that organized religion filled has not gone away. No, not at all. And, you know, I used to think that unaffiliated people or unaffiliated Jews were atheists. Mm. I used to believe that until I started Neshub and realized, no, no, they're deeply spiritual. They just need to find a spiritual home. Yeah. 
And it's so, you know, I was brought up Orthodox Jewish. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then as years went by, my parents were less religious. But, you know, I was in synagogue Tuesday, Thursdays for Hebrew school, Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. Friday night, Saturday morning for services and Sunday for Sunday school. And I would tell you that I learned very little about understanding the essence of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not alone. <laughs> this was in the 50s and yeah. early 60s. Yeah. I learned how to read Hebrew. I, you know, mm-hmm. I became familiar uh, with the ingredients of an Orthodox service, but I wouldn't say I received any spiritual grounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's typical? I think of that era, yes. There was just so many people come to me and tell me, you know, who sort of grew up in that era that it was rote what they learned. They learned kind of wrote memorization and what they what they needed in their lives was meaning. Yeah. What they needed was a sense that just what Einstein was talking about, that that we're all connected and how we're connected. And do you think Judaism has changed? Yes, I think Judaism has changed and it is changing. And how would you describe the change? Um, well, there's certainly a growth to the right as well. In other words, there's there's, there's definitely a growth in the in the right wing of Judaism and in, in Orthodoxy and uh, and Hasidism uh, in the Hasidic community, but I also see that progressive Judaism has made it a point to seek meaning and to teach meaning. And do you think that's attracting more people either to or back to Judaism? Yes, I do. I mean, I think I think there's many more Jews who will described to you today that they're feeling that they're having a meaningful experience in Jewish mm. life. Yeah. We're the synagogue of my 50s. Although, you know, when you were telling that story about Elie Wiesel, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but my uh, brother, one of my brothers died when I was 12. Mm. And I was actually about to be bat mitzvahed because in the Orthodox synagogue then you got bat mitzvahed I, well, for one, they didn't like bat mitzvahs, but if you did uh-huh. one, you were 12, not 13. Uh-huh. And our rabbi, who had been, uh, who's a Polish Jew and had been in the Haganah and then emigrated to the United States, his name was Haskell Lindenthal, was a kind of old-fashioned, rigidy rabbi. And when my brother died, um, I had been like president of our youth group and very active in synagogue life, and I would not go back to synagogue mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, what kind of God kills a three-year-old boy? Like, what's that about? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't go back to synagogue. And mm-hmm. Rabbi Lindenthal came to my house. The synagogue was cross street. Rabbi Lindenthal came to my house every day after school and took me for a walk mm-hmm. and talked about nothing and everything. And it took months and months until he, you know, casually invited me to come back to synagogue. Wow. That's a beautiful story. You know, so when I say I didn't learn the meaning of Judaism, Rabbi Lindenthal's outreach and taking the time to like take a 12-year-old for a walk every day after Mm -hmm. school, Mm -hmm. you know, think about the kind of commitment an intrusion to a rabbi to do that. But it taught me something that Hebrew school and all that wrote never did. 
<laughs> and that was just about, you know, exactly what you're saying, uh, Naomi, about listening to Ellie Wiesel. You know, I don't think I had lost hope, um, although m- maybe it would be an example of losing hope. But he did generate a kind of kindness that made me feel like I belonged to something. That's beautiful. That That's mattered. Yeah. He was mm-hmm. He was a great... He, he's deceased, uh, but he was a, a great rabbi. You know, but it, it makes me think of another question. You know, being a rabbi, you know, one minute you're helping people get through the end of life or some loss, and the next minute you're celebrating with someone. How does that take a toll on you personally? How do you manage all that that up and down and sadness and joy? What I was going to say when I was listening to you was, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that Rabbi Marcus, in taking care of all these children, he returns back after the war, is reunited with his family, and then goes back to Europe to fight for better protection for Europe's remaining Jews. And his wife and children are at a bungalow colony, um, you know, by a lake on vacation, and his his young son, his 11-year-old son, Jay, dies of polio. Mm. And this man, who had taken care of so many children, suddenly loses hope. Mm. And he doesn't know how to find his hope. Mm. And after all that, the man who writes to Einstein. After saving so many children, he can't save his own. That's the man who writes to Einstein. And I I think why I was so... uh, once I found out he was a rabbi, why I was so needing to find out more is because on one hand, what you said is just true. We rabbis take care of so many people. Yeah. Who takes care of us? Right. Who do we go to for help? And it, it's, I found it so poignant that Rabbi Marcus turns to Einstein for that help. Mm. Turns to Einstein for it. Yeah. And, and that element of your book is absolutely magical about the who we need to reach out to. I mean, the fact that he knew to do that and that Einstein knew how to write such a spiritual piece, Mm -hmm. you, you know, sort of turns everything on its head that you might think. Yeah, that he took the time. Right. To write back. It, it really is unbelievable. And it, it, it just, I found it so powerful that a spiritual leader in a spiritual crisis, turns to a scientist for hope, yeah. for some reassurance, for some comfort. I mean, I found myself wanting to reread the book mm-hmm. because the mystery and the story of Einstein and the rabbi are, as I said earlier, one thread, but the spirituality that you might discover along the way as you talk about congregants and what they've encountered and how what you've learned from them and what you've helped them learn, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's something that any of us will uh, discover in it. And, and, you know, one thing I, I thought about, I've been thinking about this in general, and then you wrote a piece. I'm going to read it. Hold on. Let me find it. Um, so we're all living in a world where it's hard to disconnect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people are not working eight-hour days. There's an expectation that they're checking their email or they feel the need to post something on social media. And what you write in the book is what sort of place is the Sabbath? How do you describe it? 
I picture the Sabbath as a snowy day from my childhood, waking up and peering outside into a new world blanketed in pure white. Everything familiar looked new, bathed in light. All the rhythms of life were transformed for just a day, and everyone was free to frolic in it. Picture the Sabbath as any place you've ever been that calmed you and helped you breathe more deeply, a place that filled you with awe. No matter what your faith tradition is, imagine what it might be like to set one day aside each week for romance, for family, for community, for learning and prayer. A day of sensuality, physical pleasure, good food, nature, and song. That is so beautiful, Naomi, and I think something that people are attracted to but somehow cannot make happen. What are the obstacles, do you think, for people making this happen for themselves? We're living in a time where there are no more boundaries. Mm. I mean, there are great and wonderful uh, aspects to having smartphones and having a 24-hour news cycle and knowing in an instant that there was an earthquake in Iraq and Iran or what's going on wherever it's happening in this world. But our work doesn't leave us when we come home. Nothing leaves us. And we're constantly being pulled away from our own relationships and from our relationship with our own self, with our soul, because there's just a constant chatter, this constantly being pulled away. And I can't tell you how often I've counseled families that no longer have a family dinner Mm. because this kid is in front of that screen and this kid is in front of that screen. And how important it is to put it all down, even just for a day, to experience each other. How many couples I've counseled because they're in bed with their smartphones Mm. instead of with each other and what that can do to a relationship. So the obstacles... The obstacles are huge to actually setting aside sacred time. But once you start doing it, that's what I, what I found with people is once you start doing it, you do it once, twice, it can become addictive because it's like saying, uh, what if somebody gave you a free pass to go to a spa? Right. You would want it. You would want to take it. You'd do it. Yeah. Mm. I hope, Naomi, that the listeners to our discussion today will think about ways to create that space, even if they tiptoe to it. Um, You know, even if it's a dinner or an afternoon and and not a day, it it makes me think about it. Um, Yeah. One man who I know very well, who's a physician, told me what it was like to just put the phone away in the drawer, put, take off the watch yeah. and the phone and how, what a kind of freedom. It seems like such a silly little thing to just, you know, put away your phone and your watch. What it means to be present to your own children, to be present to your wife, to have friends over and actually be talking to them and not, you know, furtively sneaking peeks at your Instagram or your Facebook or your texts or your emails. What it means to actually be there yeah. and enjoy it. It's huge. Yeah, and I'm amazed. You know, we had uh, Sherry Turkle on, who's up at Harvard Mm -hmm. and wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation. Yeah. And and she talks about the devastating impact on young people who lose the capacity for empathy because they're communicating Mm -hmm. through 
texting or social media, even to the degree where six of them could be at dinner and they're actually conversing by texting one another rather than looking each other in the eye and having a conversation. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty. But, it's, but that's the world. That's the world these children are growing up in. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe our advice can be to start with like two hours uh-huh. during the day. Just one dinner. Yeah, one Just dinner. One dinner. Like one mm-hmm. dinner. Mm-hmm. No, no, right. because it, research has even shown that even a phone turned over on the table is impactful. Oh. Yes, it is. You know, it needs to be somewhere else, like in, you know, dinner yeah. parties that you might go to where they go in a basket. Right, right. So before we close, Naomi, the question, you know, we could we could talk for a very long time. And for those who haven't read the book yet, and I hope they will, but what's the book that changed your life? One of them is certainly Man's Search for Meaning. Mm, by Viktor Frankl? Yes. And what was it about that book? Well, it was certainly one of the books I read during some of my darkest times. and To cheer you <laughs> up? <laughs> <laughs> In a way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In a way, yeah. Um, and again, um, I actually wrote in my book about a scene from Man's Search for Meaning that's always remained with me, where Viktor Frankl had come had entered the concentration camp with a scientific manuscript in the pocket of his overcoat, Mm. thinking that somehow he'd be able to save this manuscript because he kept calling it his life's work, Mm. his spiritual child. And of course, you know, they took all his clothing and his coat and he, he lost that manuscript. And he kept thinking that nothing would survive him and that his life had no meaning. And sometime later in Auschwitz, he was given the coat of a dead man to wear, and he reached into the pocket, and just where he had hidden his manuscript, he just saw a single page that had been hidden in this coat, and it were the words of the Hebrew prayer, Shema Israel, listen Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai is one. And Frankel said, how should I have interpreted that coincidence? It had to be that my life had meaning, and that my purpose in life would be to find meaning. And I believe that Frankel has done that for millions of people. Oh, yeah. To help people find meaning in even the most challenging times, that there's a purpose to every day, a high purpose, a high purpose to every single day. Naomi, I feel blessed that I have had the pleasure of reading your books, of getting to meet you, um, of having lunch in your garden and a pomegranate Mm -hmm. from your pomegranate tree, because you are inspiring. Your books are inspiring. Your persona is inspiring. And the story of Einstein and the rabbi um, is a manifestation of how all of us need to reach out. And I think you you make us understand that that can happen, and you don't necessarily have to be a rabbi or even learned to be able to touch another person. So thank you, you very know, much. You just never know. Yeah. I mean, even uh, John Mankiewicz, who's our mutual friend, I had written to John just saying, I've got this new book coming out. Uh, if you can help me in any way, share its message. I so would love that. And in an instant, he wrote back and he said, 
it's so odd because I was talking to my friend, Roxanne, and she admires your writing. Mm. And I had no idea. Right. (laughs) Right. Why would you? Right. I just, there are so many different ways that we're, we're, we're all put here to help each other and that the world is a much smaller place than we ever mm, imagined. I know. So I'm going to close with a letter um, that I wrote to your publisher is a friend of mine, Bob Miller. And um, I feel like your book is so important. I asked Bob if I could uh, write a letter to send to his email list of 500 booksellers. So I'm going to close with reading this. A dear fellow bookseller, as happens to all of us, sometimes you read a book that you're worried won't get the attention it deserves. When this happens, we reach out to our fellow booksellers to tell them about the book. The book that has inspired me to reach out to you today is by a rabbi named Naomi Levy, whose earlier book, To Begin Again, has always been such a touchstone for me, a book about grief and renewal that I have reread many times and recommended to friends and customers over and over through the years. Naomi's new book, just published by Flatiron, is called Einstein and the Rabbi. This time the subject is the soul, that mysterious thing that guides our lives and may or may not survive our deaths. In these times where the line between spiritual and self-help is often ambiguous, it is hard to find a book that manages this intersection as effectively as Naomi does. As I read her book, underlining, making notes, and rereading, I was touched, enlightened, and comforted. Despite her religious training, this book is not filled with religious jargon, but provides anecdotes and insights that inform us in profound ways about how to live our lives. Threading through the book is a mystery of a fascinating relationship between Albert Einstein and a rabbi who has lost his young son and is searching for meaning remarkably from a scientist. Rabbi Levy delivers a fascinating template for contemplating meaning in our lives for those of us who are Jewish and for anyone of any religious or non-religious background looking for inspiration. This is a book I will be recommending for years to come, and I hope one you will come to cherish as well. So for this, Naomi, I'd like to thank you for sharing your time and sharing your kindness and sharing your story with so many of us. Thank you so much, Oxan. And that letter, I'm just humbled by that letter. It's so beautiful. Well, I can't thank you enough for sending it to your colleague. Well, it was my pleasure. So I'm going to get out to L.A. for a neshuva. Oh, I'd love that. I'm going to and and my and my brother, as as we joked about, my little brother Mitchie, uh, who's <laughs> a man in his fifties, <laughs> despite the fact that I call him Mitchie. We will come together. I would love to have you and Mitchie. Yeah. <laughs> Naomi, thank you very much for joining us on Just the Right Book. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Rabbi Levy. Now let's hear what books people are reading and loving in New Haven. If you just want to say your name and what you're currently reading. Hi, I'm Jamie. I'm currently reading Small Great Things by Jody Picoult. Great. What am I currently reading? It's a Jody Picoult book. Great Small Things. That is my favorite book 
ever. We just talked to someone else that was reading that book. Absolutely. Such a good book. Such, such a good book. I finished that one and I gave it to someone to borrow and I bought another one so that I would have it. Wow. So yes. So very highly recommend that book, but I can't remember which one I'm reading now. I love Jodi Picoult. All Jodi Picoult. Just assume it's something, something of hers and it's wonderful because they all are. My name is Patricia, and I'm reading The 22 Laws of Marketing by Al Rise and Jack Trout. Any good advice in there? Great advice on all things marketing, taking it from different perspectives and really analyzing the market and how to best penetrate it with your brand. First, can I ask your name? Morella. Okay. And is there any book in particular that you've liked to read or that you've just read and want to share or tell us about? Was reading about but didn't really read the book. Somebody tweeted about that. I can't remember the name. It was uh, R.J. Julia, and it sounded really, really cool. Oh, something from the podcast you heard mentioned? I think it was Immortalist or something like that, but it sounded really cool. So something that's what you're looking forward to reading? Mm Mm-hmm. Great. What are you currently reading here in the middle of winter? Right now I'm reading Walking to Listen. Uh, about this guy that walked across America and uh, just wanted to learn from people and figure out what it was to be a grown-up. Do you remember who wrote that book? Andrew Forstoffel. My name is Jim. What are you currently reading? Pachinko. It's a, um, um, it, it's sort of a saga of a family that, that sort of starts in Korea and moves to um, Osaka. And it, it, there's a gambling effect of it. That there's a, Pachinko, I think, is a gambling game, which I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet to really know. But that's what intrigues me. My first name is Steve. Okay, and what are you currently reading this winter? I am reading a fantastic book called Truthers. And it's about a, uh, a young girl, a high school girl, whose father uh, has certain feelings about what really happened on 9-11 with the towers. And they think he's crazy, so they lock him up. And now she's trying to find out what's going on. And it's uh, about halfway through the book. And it's really, really interesting. It's, uh, it's fiction, but it's going back to something that really took place and makes you think outside the box. Thanks again to today's guest. Please make sure to pick up a copy of Rabbi Levy's book, Einstein and the Rabbi, which is out now. And for a complete list of all the books we talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.